So yeah, Romans 3, verse 21, to the end of the chapter. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had uh, left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Uh, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of the law? Because of what law? Uh, the law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Uh, is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Just a little over a hundred years ago, in um, 1918, a bunch of Cambridge University students stood against the entire world. They said that they were right and everyone else in the world was wrong. And they shook the world. And in lots of ways, they weren't actually very different to you guys sitting here tonight. They were young and enthusiastic in their late teens, their early 20s, just like you guys were. They were unsure of themselves and excited about their future, just like you guys are. They were excited about the cross and about Jesus, just like you guys are. And in fact, that last thing is why they stood against the world. These students were part of something that's called KICU, which is the Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union, KICU. And the KICU was part of a worldwide movement called the SCM, the Student Christian Movement. But the guys at KICU were starting to get increasingly worried about the SCM's teaching on a bunch of key issues. They were worried about what they taught on the nature of the Bible, Jesus' deity, but especially, what do we think about the cross? What happened to Jesus on the cross and what happened for us? Because you see, the SCM, that worldwide group, had actually started to drift away from the Bible. And in 1918, the leaders of Kikyu sat down with the leaders of the SCM. So there was a fellow named Daniel Dick and Norman Grubb from the Kikyu. And they met with Charles Raven and Rollo Pelly from the SCM. And don't, don't you just love how English their names sound? Rollo Pelly, only an Englishman. I mean, if you had that in Australia, you'd get beaten up in kindy. <laughs> Here's what Norman Grubbs said later about the meeting. After about an hour's talk, I asked Rollo point blank, does the SCM put the atoning blood of Jesus central? Rollo hesitated and then said, well, we acknowledge it, but not necessarily central. 
Dan Dick and I said this settled the matter for the Kiku. We could never join something that didn't maintain the atoning blood of Jesus as its center. And we parted company. And the Kiku made this massive decision to leave behind the SEM, which was the student world group movement. And you can imagine the kind of flack they copped. They were called arrogant and hard-nosed and pig-headed and divisive and nitpickers. They were condemned by almost every major denomination around the world as being sectarian and divisive. But they were absolutely convinced that the atoning blood of Jesus is central to Christianity. And we've seen this week, they're right, haven't we? Jesus' penal substitutionary atonement, his death on our behalf is at the heart of God's plans for humanity. More than that, it's actually at the heart of God's plans for himself. The cross is how God glorifies himself. This is the very heart of the universe. And tonight what we're going to see is how the cross is at the very heart of the Christian life. The cross dominates our life. So much so, and this might actually sound amazing to you, it wasn't just Jesus who died on that cross. If you're a Christian, you also died with him. Come with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and we'll see it there. In Romans chapter 5 verse 20, Paul explains the connection that we saw last night between sin and the law. He talks about how the sin and the law work together. So Romans chapter 5 verse 20, he says, The law was added so that trespass might increase. Now that's extraordinary, isn't it? We usually assume that the reason you give laws is to stop people from doing the wrong thing. But God didn't give Israel the law to stop them from sinning. He gave Israel the law to increase their sins so that our sin would actually run riot with the law. That was actually God's plan because it was also his plan to save us by grace. So look at 5 verse 20 again. The law was added so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You see, the reason God wanted sin to increase was so that his grace would be even greater. His chesed would be even greater. God wanted his grace to flower and to bloom, and so he fertilized it with the law and sin. But in Romans 6 verse 1, Paul asks a really great question. He asks the kind of question that a really sneaky person might ask. Have a look in 6 verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? You see, if God increased sin to show how gracious he was, well, why not let's just keep sinning? Because the more I sin, the more gracious God gets to be. That means everyone's a winner. It's fantastic. And some of you are thinking, if only I thought of that by myself. (laughs) Except look at Paul's answer in verse 2. By no means. And the word he uses literally there is, may that never be. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, Paul's answer is amazing. He doesn't just say God doesn't want you to sin. He says Christians don't keep sinning because we've died to sin. Sin is a past life for us. But what does that mean? 
How have we died? Because clearly we haven't died physically. What sort of death are we talking about? Well, have a look in verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is a little bit complex, but Paul says Christians have actually been baptized into Jesus and into his death. And I don't think he's talking about baptism necessarily, at least not, not literally. I think he's using baptism figuratively there. In other words, if you're a Christian, you have been immersed into Jesus. In some way, you have been joined, connected to Jesus. Or if you look down in verse 5, he uses different language. He says, we've been united with him. See, when you become a Christian, something absolutely fundamental about you changes. It's not just that you change your mind. It's not just that you change your behavior. You actually change your identity in some way. Your identity gets merged with Jesus. It joins with Jesus so that your identity starts to merge with his identity. Paul talks about it in Galatians as well. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See the kind of language Paul uses there? He uses three huge images for the way we're joined with Jesus. So there's the baptism one, that you've kind of been immersed into Jesus, that we saw in Romans 6. But then he also says, you have been clothed with Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus has, has wrapped around you. Like Jesus is kind of like an udi. In, in this respect, the, the uri just kind of wraps around you, but just a lot more tasteful than most of the uris we've seen. <laughs> Having said that, I think we've missed a trick. We shouldn't have had the... I, I have been on at Tony, Tony Allen, our comms guy, for years now to get church merch, to get hoodies, to get all... I think we should have a church uri. I would wear it. I would buy my children those to wear. Whether I'd wear it myself is another question. <laughs> but Jesus wraps around us like a cloak wrapping around us. He sh we're shrouded in him. And then in the last part of that passage, he says we belong to Jesus. Now, they're just different ways of saying that if you're a Christian, there is some fundamental intimate connection between you and Jesus. The language the Bible often uses is you are in Jesus. And that actually changes who you are at a fundamental level. Because look what Paul says in verse 28. He says, that means that there aren't any Jews anymore or Greeks anymore. There aren't slave or free or even male or female. Your identity has been so merged, you're not you anymore. Your identity has now been merged with Jesus. That's why he says something fundamental in verse 26. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are actually a son of God, even if you're a woman. This is one of those things where we actually don't want to let gender-neutral language come into the Bible. Paul is making a big point here. He's saying, if no matter whether you're a man or a woman, you are a son. Why? Because you're attached to the son. You have sonship because you're attached to the one who is the son, whether you're a man or a woman. 
And so if you're a woman, you're also a son. But don't worry, if you're a guy, you're also Jesus' bride. So that's kind of the way it works. Do you see how close we are to Jesus? The closest I think we can kind of come in our personal experience with this is the idea of marriage. When a man and a woman get married, what happens to them? They become one and they move into one house together and they share the same bed together and they share the same bank account together. They even take the same name. One of the cute things that Emma's grandmother used to do was that she would write letters to Emma and she would address the letter to Mrs. Gregory Lee because that's in her generation. That's how they used to address people who were wives. She, Emma is Mrs. Gregory Lee, which always meant that every time I saw the letter, I would open it up because I didn't see the S on the end of Mrs. And it would be awkward. I'd have to explain it to Emma. Emma would remind me it's against the law to open someone else's mail. It was, <laughs> it was tricky, but it was a really helpful illustration. Marriage reflects Jesus and us. We're joined to him. And you might ask, well, how did this joining happen? How did, what is the bond? How did we get so joined? And the answer is faith. You can see it in Galatians 3. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith is the thing that connects us to him. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. In Colossians 2, we're buried and raised with Jesus through our faith. But it's more than faith. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit joins us to Jesus. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, and we're all given one Spirit to drink. You see, the Holy Spirit is the baptizer, if you like. He, he joins us to Jesus. And so John says, we know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. Do you see this idea? If you're a Christian, you have this incredibly intimate link with the Lord Jesus. By faith, through the Holy Spirit, you're joined to him so that his identity is now your identity. And his name is now your name. His sonship is now your sonship. And his death is now your death. Our last passage on it, Paul puts it as clear as crystal in Galatians chapter 2. He says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. It's so clear, isn't it? If you're a Christian, on that day when Jesus died at Calvary, so did you. And look, it's absolutely crucial that we get this. Because you see, without this joining to Jesus, there can be no penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus can't take our sin if he's not joined to us. So you see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now the key phrase there is, in him. We're in Jesus. We're joined to Jesus and he's joined to us. And in that joining, that's where the substitution takes place because our sin gets placed on him. 
That's how Jesus became sin. He takes our sin because Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. No, it was our sin that was attached to him. And notice what else happens. We get the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God. Since we're joined to Jesus, his righteousness is transferred to us. We get credited with his goodness and his rightness and his perfection. It's kind of like swapping jerseys. Imagine yourself wearing a really muddy jersey. It's filthy. It's so filthy that you can't even see it anymore. Almost like the guys playing football out there yesterday. It's just black. But instead of being black with mud, imagine your jersey is actually black with sin. It's stained with everything you have ever done wrong. And more than that, this is where the illustration kind of falls down, it's also your heart. Your heart has actually stained this jersey with sin. It's muddy from the inside out. And imagine Jesus wearing a pure, white, pristine jersey. It represents all of his perfections. On the cross, you and Jesus were joined by faith, by the Holy Spirit, and he took off his pristine white jersey and put on your muddy one. In God's eyes, he now represented you. He now became sin. He was sin-laden. And he gave you his perfect white jumper. He gave you this status of perfection. Do you see what being joined with Jesus meant? What it meant was he could take our place. Now look, we have to, we have to stop here for a minute. And we have to make clear exactly what we do and don't mean by this. It's really important that we get something straight here. We're not saying that Jesus becomes evil on the cross and that we become good. Because what we've seen the last couple of nights is Jesus was actually good on the cross. Jesus was obedient on the cross and Jesus was loving his father on the cross. Jesus could never actually become sinful. No, he was sin laden. We wore his goodness And he took our sin. Now, it's important that we actually get this right because this is one of the areas of the Bible. This is one of the areas where the Bible and the Roman Catholic Church teach something very different. There's loads of things where we would agree with the Roman Catholic Church. We'd agree that God made the world. We'd agree that Jesus is God. There's loads of things that we agree on. But in Roman Catholic teaching... I don't get credited with Jesus' righteousness. I don't wear Jesus' jumper. No, what Roman Catholic teaching is, is that I become righteous. When I get baptized as a Catholic, my heart is changed. And I become righteous and pure like Jesus. And then because of my righteous life, God acknowledges my righteousness on the last day. So this is from the Roman Catholic Catechism. This is from their teachings. It teaches that when we believe in Jesus, when we become Catholics, we receive not only forgiveness of sins, but a renewal of the inner man through the voluntary reception of grace so that the unjust man becomes righteous. Now, the key bit there is that becomes righteous. What they're saying is that when you become a Catholic, you enter what is known as the state of of grace and in this state of grace you're actually changed on the inside in fact you're so changed you actually earn heaven 
By the goodness of your life, by the purity of your heart, you earn merit before God. You earn heaven and God acknowledges that on the last day. And in fact, your job is to keep earning heaven, to stay in that state of grace. And so the Catechism says it's the prime duty of the Catholic to retain his relationship with God. Only in the state of grace can one merit eternal life. You see, it's up to you to stay in this state of grace to earn God's merit and earn eternal life. You see, the Roman Catholic Church actually teaches something very different to the Bible here. The Bible says Jesus takes off his jersey and puts on yours. And you stand before God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, which gets credited to you. Roman Catholicism says Jesus changes my heart and I earn heaven by my good life and by my religious acts. But of course, as soon as you realise that, you realise that this puts the Roman Catholic person in a terrible position, doesn't it? Because what about the sins that I commit now? I mean, I still sin after I became a Christian. How can God look at me and call me righteous now? Well, their answer is he can't. Their answer is I lose my state of righteousness. You can kind of see a diagram of how it works uh, of their view on the screen. So in Catholicism, I, I become a Catholic and God changes my character. When I trust in Jesus and I get baptized, I get into this state of grace and God acknowledges my goodness. And if I died at that point, I would be fine because God would see my righteous character and he'd accept me as a good person. But if I don't die straight away, inevitably, I'm going to sin. And then I lose my righteousness, I lose my status before God, my justification. My character's not righteous anymore, and so I have to do two things now. I have to do things to become righteous again. So I've got to go to a priest. I've got to confess my sins. I've got to do penance so I can re-enter that state of grace. I can become righteous again. But of course, then, inevitably, I sin again. And so I lose my righteousness all over again. And I have to go and do more confession and more penance and more, say more prayers so that I can re-enter the state of grace. And then, of course, I lose it again. And it's a terrible position to be in because if you ask a Catholic, they will never be certain if they're going to heaven. Will I go to heaven? I don't know. Have I sinned since I did my last confession? That's why they have the last rites so close to death because hopefully you'll die before you can sin again. It's actually a race between the disease and your sin. Which is going to come first? Hopefully the disease. You'll die before you can sin. It's why they have purgatory in case sin wins so that you can work off the sins you've committed after the last rites. But you can see the Bible never teaches any of this. Now, in the Bible, I just trust Jesus and he gives me his righteousness. I wear his jumper and then at the end of life, God reaffirms that declaration. That is, God does not accept me because he's changed me. God accepts me because Jesus took my sin and gave me his righteousness. Now, it's crucial that we get this for a couple of reasons. The first one is, eternity is on the line here. It's about where you put your trust. What will you trust in to get to heaven? Well, if you follow Roman Catholic teachings, inevitably you end up trusting yourself. 
You trust your changed life. When God says, why should I let you into heaven? The answer is, because look, I've changed. Look at my life. But the question is, have you changed enough? What about your greed? What about your lust? What about the sins you committed after the last rites? You can never be sure. The Roman Catholic is never sure of going to heaven. It's a perpetual uncertainty that frankly is just cruel. But the Christian is sure. The Christian is as sure as Jesus' death, as sure as Jesus' righteousness. Why should God let me into heaven? It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. His death, his jumper, his righteousness. God, look at him, not at me. You see, it's important that we get this right because heaven and eternity is at stake. It's about where we place our trust. But you know, the other reason we need to get this right is because it's actually become fashionable to say that none of this matters. See, the mood of our times is to say it's bad to ever disagree with anyone. It's intolerant to ever say that anyone's wrong. It's bigoted to actually say that other people are wrong. You get hammered for it, just like the kick you guys got hammered when they left the SCM. Because disagreement, disagreeing with anyone's intolerant. And so the mood among even Bible Christians these days is to start to say, there's actually nothing wrong with Roman Catholicism, just so long as they're sincere. As long as you're sincere, it doesn't actually matter. But what that's saying is that sincerity is the thing that makes you a Christian. Is the sincere Buddhist a Christian? Is the sincere uh, Muslim going to heaven? No, sincerity is not what makes you a Christian. It's the blood of Jesus that makes you a Christian. And this push that it's as long as you're sincere, what it says is that it doesn't matter that Roman Catholicism teaches a different way to heaven. It doesn't matter that you're putting your trust in your goodness. It doesn't matter that Jesus is actually robbed of his glory in this. It doesn't matter that millions of people all around the world have no assurance of going to heaven. All that matters is you're sincere. It's terribly wrong. The fact is, Roman Catholicism is a terrible burden. Instead of getting Jesus' righteousness, I'm forced to earn my own. And no one can stand before God like that. Now, in the Bible, Jesus, the perfect, pure, sinless God, joined himself to to me And he wore all of my muddy filth willingly so that I could be given his perfection. Why would I ever want my own? And of course that does lead to a question, doesn't it? Does that mean that I never actually change? Is the Bible saying that my jumper is white because it's Jesus' jumper, but my heart stays black? Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, actually, no. Because, you see, something else happened to me when Jesus died. My sinful nature also died with him. So I hope you've still got Romans 6 open. Have a look in Romans 6, verse 6. He says, For we know that our old self 
was crucified with him so that the body of sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. See, when we died with Jesus, something fundamental actually changed with us. Our old self died, our sinful nature. And we didn't die physically, but we died in our sinful natures. That, that bit of us that sins against God also died. Now, how it works in time, I don't know. I don't know how it is that my sinful nature died with Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago before I was even born. I, I haven't actually figured that out, but it's real. Paul says, if you're a Christian... When Jesus died on that cross, you were there with him and the sinful part of you also died. And in fact, you can see the effects of it in verse 6. Have a look in verse 6. He says, we are no longer slaves to sin. In other words, sin doesn't own us anymore. We, we don't have that nature that always wants to rebel against God that we saw last night in the Empire State Building. No, actually now we're new people. We're born again. You see, Jesus' death actually means a fundamental change in my heart. And so have a look in verse 11 at how Paul tells you to see yourself. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. What Paul says there is, recognize what really happened on the cross. You died, own that, count that, live it. In other words, you don't have to sin when temptation comes. When temptation comes, in fact, think of it now. Think of the, what's the sin you most hate in your life? Think of it in your head. Before you became a Christian, that sin just owned you, didn't it? It, it, it had a grip on you. Your sinful nature owned you. But Paul says that part of you has now died. That old part of you, that, that's dead now. And that's actually a reality. And yes, you can't be perfect yet. Yes, perfection is waiting in heaven. And Paul talks all about that in Romans chapter 7. He says, we're still caught in these sinful bodies so that it's kind of a battle within us. But what he says is, here is a reality. The sinful part of you has died. You have a choice now that you never had before. You can choose not to sin. You can choose to fight and to obey. And you can choose to put sin to death again and again and again every day of your life. So look what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. See, Paul nails it. In verse 3, he says, you've actually died. That's in your past now. As soon as you become a Christian, in fact, on the cross with Jesus, you died and your life is hidden with Jesus. And when he returns, it'll be seen by the whole universe. 
But he says, that also means you've got a choice now. Verse 4, he says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Things like sexual immorality and greed and lust, you put those things to death now because you've already died to them. You see, Christians may not be able to live perfect lives. Of course we can't live perfect lives. That's for heaven. But the thing is, in this life, we do change. And it's at this point, lots of Christians say, yeah, but Greg, how? How do I change? I mean, I want to change. Yeah, I know that Jesus has died for me. I know that I know that I died with him. But how do I change? Is there some kind of secret method of something that I can do to change? Because frankly, I've changed everything. I've, I've tried everything. I've tried accountability partners and I've tried quiet times and I've tried counseling and I've tried computer programs to record what I look at on my computer and I've tried everything possible. Give me the secret method to change. And I get what you're saying there. Because even though we have died with Christ, life in this body is still kind of hard, isn't it? We're still on this side of heaven and it's so hard to beat sin this side of heaven. Just have a look at some of the stories of real people and see if you can maybe see yourself in any of them. Jack started masturbating in his teens. 20 years or so later, he's still masturbating two or three times a week and always with sinful fantasies. And he thought marriage was sorted out, but he didn't. He's put in place regimes of spiritual discipline, all to no avail. Carla's life was turned upside down, turned around when she was converted. She left an adulterous relationship and stopped getting drunk, but a few years on, her Christian growth seems to have plateaued. She looks respectable enough, but those close to her know she has a temper. She's not someone you'd ever want to cross. Jake and Karen are the exciting young couple at church. They lead youth group and singing. They're the go-to couple whenever things need to happen. But not nobody knows is that when they're behind closed doors, they're trapped in a cycle of going too far. And they've tried accountability partners and setting boundaries. And they haven't slept together yet. But it just feels like a matter of time. Do you see yourself any of those stories? They're not so unusual, are they? I mean, we know that we've died with Jesus. We know that this is a reality, but sometimes it, it just doesn't feel like it. Because we still have those lifelong struggles with things like masturbation and boyfriends and girlfriends struggling with temptation and, and sin just kind of feels inevitable. And our instinct is, I've got to do something. I've got to try a new regime. I've got to get up earlier in the morning and have a quiet time. Maybe that will stop me. I've got to get an accountability partner. Maybe that will help me to beat sin. I've got to get a computer program. Maybe that will stop my heart from doing it. I've got to set boundaries like Jake and Karen. I've got to do something. And look, none of those things are bad. In fact, in a bit I'm going to say I think they're great. I believe in computer programs. I believe in accountability partners. I believe in having quiet times. But what does Romans say is the key for defeating sin? It's not something I do, is it? It's something that Jesus has already done. Jesus died and I died with him. Jesus has killed my sinful nature and he's given me his nature. And no, I can't be perfect until heaven, but I have been changed and I can obey 
And so look where Paul tells us to direct our effort in verse 11. He says, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What do Christians do in the face of sin and temptation? We count ourselves dead to sin. That, that word, it's all about you consider yourself dead to sin. You recognize the reality of death to sin. And what we're recognizing here is the truth of Jesus. He's telling us to dwell on the truth of Jesus. That is the most decisive thing that you can ever do to defeat temptation and sin in the moment is to come back and dwell on Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross. In other words, in the moment of temptation, re-preach the gospel to yourself. So think of that moment of temptation. Think of that moment when you're really tempted towards sin. So I'm tempted to be angry or I'm tempted to be jealous of someone else or I'm tempted towards lust. What do I need to do in that moment? Well, I think one of the things that's really helpful to do is identify the lie that Satan wants to tell me in this moment. What's the lie that Satan wants me to believe here? One of the big lies Satan wants me to believe when it comes to sin is that God is ripping me off. The reason that other person has more money than I do is because, or the reason they've got a boyfriend and I don't, or girlfriend and I don't, is because God simply doesn't love me very much. Or God's ripping me off by telling me to be pure. God doesn't want me to enjoy sex. That one's a really key lie. God is ripping me off. There's also another lie. My sin is inevitable. I will always fail. I will always lose my temper. I'll always give in to temptation to pornography. It's just a matter of time. Satan really loves that lie. It's inevitable. But what we need to do is not listen to Satan, but preach the truth to ourselves. In Romans 6 verse 11... I need to count myself dead to sin. I need to say, Greg, you are dead to sin. You died with Jesus on that cross and you are free from sin and you have the Holy Spirit. In fact, you now belong to Jesus, which means sin here is not inevitable. Masturbation is not inescapable here. You can resist. You do have a choice because of Jesus. And God wants you to resist here. And it's not because he's ripping you off. It's because he loves you. And he wants what's best for you. So Greg, stand firm in this moment. You see, in the moment of temptation, the thing to do is come back to the truth and re-preach the gospel to yourself and then pray like mad. Say, Jesus, you've given me a new heart. Jesus, you've made me a new person. My sinful nature is dead. Keep changing me, Jesus. Keep working within me. Help me to put sin to death here. That's what we do in the moment of temptation. Count ourselves dead to sin. Re-preach the gospel to ourselves and pray. Re-preach the truth to your heart and then pray it. Why not try that? Next time you're tempted, identify the lie that's coming at you here and then preach the truth to your heart and then pray it. And then live out that truth. Because look what Paul says in verse 11 again. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body 
so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your bodies to him as instruments of righteousness. That is, once you've actually re-preached the gospel to yourself, the next thing to do is it's a matter of just getting on and being obedient. And this is where things like accountability partners and quiet times and computer programs can actually help. They won't change your heart. You don't need them to change your heart. Jesus has already done that. But they can give us skills. And they can give us strategies. And they can give us support. So use them. I'm a big fan of all of those things. Talk to other Christians. Get the computer program. Build good habits as couples. But the key thing is, count yourself dead to sin. Preach the gospel to your heart in that moment. And so let me ask you a tough question. What is it for you sitting there tonight? What sins do you need to put to death with Jesus tonight? Are you Jack? You're caught in pornography, you're caught in masturbation and the shame of it is just killing you. It's sucking the joy out of you. Are you Jake and Karen? You look fantastic and you're leading growth groups and you're doing ministry but every God knows what everyone else doesn't and that is that you are overcommitted physically and you're out of control. Are you Carla? You look like you're absolutely on fire for Jesus, but the fact is that inside you're cold. You've lost your love. Is it greed? Is it discontentment about where God's put you in your life? What is it for you tonight? Isn't it time that you left that sin back at the cross? Tonight's the night to draw a line under it and to say, no more. In the power of Jesus, I know I have a choice and I choose to kill it. I choose to to obey. I'm going to choose to live for Jesus and I'm done with it. And yes, tomorrow you'll fail. Yes, you're going to have to pick yourself up again and keep trusting in Jesus. But tonight is the night to make that decision. And look, you might need to talk to someone about it. You might need to talk to someone about it simply to help you to unravel all of the mess that's going on in your head. If that's the case, talk to another Christian here at NYC. I mean, remember, we've all got the Holy Spirit. You can talk to a growth group leader. You can talk to one of the staff. But talk to one of the other Christians here and preach the gospel to each other. And call each other to a believer because we have died to sin. But where we're going to finish tonight is that we've also died to ourselves on that cross. And we've also died to selfishness. Because have a look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here is another way that the cross just shapes our lives. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. We now understand that, don't we? Jesus died for all of us. He paid for our sins. But that also means we all died with him. We died to sin. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, now that Jesus has died for me, and now that I've died with him to sin, what does that mean? 
Well, Paul says that means that I have died to my own life. And in fact, I no longer live for myself. Now in my new life, I live for Jesus. In fact, what I die to is myself. Because Jesus tells me to take up my cross and follow him. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. See, what, what, what this is saying is, we don't, as Christians, we don't just go to the cross with Jesus. We stay there. The Christian life is a daily act of death. It's death to me so that, I, so that Jesus can live through me. It's death to my ambitions. It's death to my goals. It's death to my comforts and death to my pride and death to my money and death to my possessions. That is everything the world lives for. I take up onto the cross and I die to them so that Jesus can fill their space. Everything that Jesus went through on Friday night, I do that to my selfishness and to my desires. I have to fight them and hate them and abandon them and forsake them and kill them. And in their place, the one burning question for the rest of my life should be, what does Jesus want me to do with my life? Do you see how the cross shapes our life? We die to ourselves and selfishness. What does this mean practically? Let's look at a couple of passages. Firstly, the one that's up on the screen, Luke 23. Where does Jesus take the cross in our lives there? Well, he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self. What is it that stops us from taking up our cross there and losing our lives for Jesus? Well, for one, it's gaining the whole world, isn't it? It's the whole world and everything that it offers, career and comfort and success. And I'm not talking about being super rich here. What I'm just talking about is comfortable middle-class security because that's actually what lies ahead of you guys. You guys have done all the hard work that you really needed to do. You got into university, and so the rest of life is really just downhill for you from here. That is, when you leave here and you leave with a degree, I'm actually being serious, when you leave here and you leave with a degree, you're going to get a good job. That's pretty much guaranteed for most of you here, and you can pretty much guarantee that within a few years' time, you're going to be earning at least $75,000 a year, some of you much, much more. Now, what that means is, from here on in, you can afford to buy yourself a comfortable life. You can afford to buy yourself a nice, comfortable house in the suburbs and a modestly nice car. You can afford to buy the VW Passat for the family car and the Golf is the second car. And with a bit of scrimping and saving, you'll be able to put the kids into private schools, especially if you both keep working. And then if you put a little bit extra into your superannuation, you might be able to buy a second house up the coast and once you reach 55, you can then think about retirement. You can buy the camper van and do a couple of laps around Australia. That's what you guys have bought with your hard work in the HSC. That's what lies before you. And actually, there's nothing sinful about any of that, is there? That's what millions of Australians are doing right now. 
But here is the key question. Where is the cross in that? Where have you taken up your cross? Where have you given up your life for Jesus' sake? You see, there are millions of people out there living exactly this life, and it's not overtly sinful. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with owning a house. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with private schools. It's just that behind that whole mindset is the towering selfishness of me, of the Western life. It's the me paradigm where I'm not overtly sinning. It's just that my entire life is a monument to me. You don't think it'll happen to you? It will happen to you the day you leave university. Because I'll tell you what will happen. On the day you leave university, you'll get a job. You'll start looking for a job. And your first priority is to find the job that pays the most money and that gives good job satisfaction. That's going to be priority number one. And then priority number two is to start saving money because you've got to buy a house that's preferably close to work and also maybe close to family but not too close to family. Now for that, (laughs) you're going to need as much money as you can possibly get so that you can buy the nicest possible house you can get. So you're going to need the biggest bank loan that you can possibly afford and then you'll go off to your job and you'll buy your house with your enormous bank loan and sometime after that, you're going to ask yourself, is there a decent church nearby? After the job, after the house, after the mortgage, probably you've got to put a husband or a wife and a couple of kids in there as well, but after you've taken care of all of your needs... Then you'll look for a church. Then you'll wonder where you put down your cross. But by then, it's too late. You're already locked into the job that demands too much. You've already got a mortgage that means you can't change jobs. And there are no good churches anywhere near where you've chosen to live. And so slowly, slowly, slowly... You have the death of a Christian life. And that's how it happens. I've seen it happen again and again. The day you finish university. Right at the very beginning of our adult lives, we lay down our cross and we pick up our greed. But friends, if, if I'm taking up my cross then my number one priority will be Jesus. I'll be on about Jesus. And so before the job, before the house, before the mortgage, I'm going to ask myself, where are the people I want to evangelize? Where are the people I want to serve? What church do I want to belong to? Because that's actually the thing that I'm setting in place first, Jesus' church. And I'm going to live close to there. And I'm going to find the job that's near to my house and my church. And sure, I might end up in a lower paying job. In fact, my job mightn't even be in the field that I studied in. And sure, my house mightn't be as nice. In fact, I may not even own a house. But when you think about it, there's not that much room for a house when you're up on a cross. You see, you need to make the decision now. Before the job, before you have money. Before you get to those decisions, you need to say, Jesus' priorities are going to be my priorities. I will not gain the whole world and yet forfeit my soul.
I'm going to go against the whole world. In fact, even against my parents in this. And I'm going to go with Jesus. So that's the first place it takes us. We, we won't gain the whole world at the forfeiture of our soul. Where else does Jesus take the cross? Well, relationships. Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What's another thing that stops people from taking up their cross? It's relationships. It's the fact that I put a person ahead of Jesus. My father, my mother, my wife, my children. Let's be honest for you guys, where you are right now, it's the husband or the wife. Particularly the non-Christian husband or wife. How is it that Christians end up married to non-Christians? Well, again, let me paint you a scenario. I'd really love a boyfriend. I mean, it seems like everyone else in church is pairing off. And it seems like all I do most weekends is go to another engagement party or another wedding or I sit alone at home. And it seems like every Sunday night, people are talking about a new engagement at church. But none of the nice Christian boys seem to notice me. And then along comes this really lovely guy. And he's sweet and he's funny and he's reasonably good looking and he notices me. And he wants to spend time with me. And he's not a Christian, but he tells me that he's interested. He says he might come along to church and check it out. And surely God wouldn't have opened this door for me if he didn't want me to go through it, right? Wrong. God wants you to marry a Christian. He tells you that when you have the choice, you must marry in the Lord. Because what's the job of a husband? Well, in Ephesians 5, the job of a husband is to love his wife in the same way that Jesus loved his church. And Jesus gave up his life for his church to make her holy and to present her to himself as a radiant church. And Paul says, husbands, that's your job too. The job of a husband is to give himself up for his wife to make her holy, to present her to Jesus when she returns. Now, girls, how is a non-Christian husband going to do that? Especially because the way that Jesus washes his wife is with the word. What non-Christian husband is going to wash you with the word of God and going to want to present you holy and blameless to Jesus? Fellows, what non-Christian girl is going to be interested in you presenting her to Jesus? They're not. And yet that's the very heart of marriage. The point of marriage is it's about preparing us to be married to Jesus forever. So why on earth would you ever marry a non-Christian? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because you're not taking up your cross. You're not letting Jesus set the agenda. And look, I know, I know it's hard waiting for someone to notice you. And I know it's lonely and I know how insensitive some couples can be if they always end up sitting next to each other and all they do is pair off together. But Jesus challenges us on this one. He says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, and his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You must put Jesus ahead of every relationship. Do not marry a non-Christian. 
Don't even marry an immature Christian. Lots of Christians become Pharisees at this point. They go out with a Christian who they know is really immature. And all their friends say, oh, he's a really immature Christian. He doesn't seem like a very godly guy. And they go, ah, but he is a Christian. (laughs) He may be a Christian, but you're an idiot. Because how can he lead you? How can the immature Christian lead you? How's he going to help you make good decisions? How's he going to support your good decisions? Often guys are really dumb at this one. They assume that the immature Christian girl is going to be easier to lead. That is not the case at all. The easiest Christian to ever lead is the most mature one. The one who wants to look like Jesus. The one who wants to be led towards Jesus. Marry the most mature Christian you can find. Guys, find the girl who will want you to present her holy and faithful to Jesus. Girls, find the guy who will do the best job of presenting you to Jesus. Now, you might think that I've actually focused a fair bit on the girls in this section, and that's actually quite deliberate. In my experience, guys fall away for money. Girls fall away for love. Men fall away for their career because it bolsters their self-esteem. Women fall away for their boyfriend. Take up your cross in relationships. And lastly, take up your cross in labour. So in the book of Philippians, Paul this time says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I'll remain. And I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, I first should say, we do have to be a little bit careful of this passage because Paul is speaking about himself as an apostle and we're not apostles. We have to be careful of that. But what drives Paul in this passage? It's a view of Jesus and the cross, isn't it? So in verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ. That's that kind of taking up your cross language, isn't it? I have died For me, my life is now Christ. I've died to myself. My life is over. It's all about Jesus now. And it's all about preaching his name and seeing Christians grow. So much so that Paul says something kind of extraordinary in this passage. He says he is willing to put up, to put aside his personal preferences for the sake of gospel ministry. Verses 23 to 26 are extraordinary. Paul says, I'd actually rather be dead than alive. Because if I'm dead, that means I get to go and be with Jesus. And immediately that blows our minds because we think, I would never want to die. Life here is too good. It shows that we don't understand heaven the way Paul understands heaven. We don't know how amazing it's going to be to be with Jesus. And Paul says, I would much rather be with Jesus than be alive. But actually, I'm convinced I'm going to stay alive. He's convinced that he's not going to die soon. Because he's going to stay alive for their sake. Look in verse 25. It's for their progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Isn't that extraordinary? 
Paul is convinced that heaven itself can wait for the sake of loving and serving other Christians for their progress and joy in the faith. Verse 22, he says, this is fruitful labor. If I'm to go on living in this body, what it's going to be about from now on is fruitful labor. Now, that's a description of a life, isn't it? What are you going to live for, for the rest of your life? What is your whole life meant to be about? Fruitful labor. Preaching the gospel. For other people's progress and joy in the faith. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It means that the rest of your life is spent helping other Christians grow and helping people who aren't Christians to become Christians. That is, have you realized that you're not at university to get a degree? You're here at university for fruitful labor. You're here at university so that you can tell your classmates about Jesus. You're here at university so that you can see other Christians grow in the faith. That's why you're alive. So that you can do fruitful labor like Paul and like the Lord Jesus Christ. So that you can work for other people's progress and joy in the faith. Will you make your entire life a life of fruitful labor for Jesus? And I'm not talking about full-time ministry. We'll get to that in a minute. Will you live for kingdom labor? Will you shape your entire life around gospel ministry? And will you give up social time to do it? And will you give up your leisure time to do it? Will you give up your study time to do it? You'll get poorer marks in your degree to do it. You'll still pass because it's important that you pass. But, or just change degrees, do an easier degree. But will you put this ahead of even your studies? Will you marry the person who's going to help you labor beside you in fruitful labor instead of holding you back? Or even better, stay single so that you can do more fruitful labor. Will you say, for me, for the rest of my life, the core central activity of my life is fruitful gospel labor, not being a physiotherapist, not being an engineer or a teacher. Now, I've had this enormous privilege in my life of I had a man who just epitomized this. His name was Don Parker. Don was the man that I followed up that followed me up when I first became a Christian. And Don is one of those incredibly brilliant men at pretty much everything that he's ever done. He's an electrical engineer. And when he he worked for the government sort of uh, uh, electrical company, when they laid off the entire section, Don was the one man they kept. They said, we can't do without you. Everyone else can go. And Don could have lived anywhere in the world that he wanted. He really is that brilliant. Do you know where he lived for 30 years? Bathurst. Which I'm sorry if you've, if you've grown up in Bathurst, I don't think much of it. The reason he lived there for nearly 30 years was he was part of a group of people that planted a church there because Bathurst desperately needed a church. And that's where his heart was for nearly 30 years. At that little church, he ran the bookstall and he ran the men's ministry. He trained the Bible study leaders. He met with guys one-to-one. Occasionally, he'd even preach. He wasn't a great preacher. He didn't particularly enjoy it because his personality is actually kind of retiring, but he did it because to him, to live was Christ. Not all that long ago, he moved away from Bathurst, and you know what he did? He moved to Sydney to help another friend plant a church. 
He didn't retire at all. He just started a new fruitful labour. Will you be like Don? Will you spend the rest of your life, will you shape your life around fruitful labour? It'll cost you. It cost Don, cost him a lot of money, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and a lot of prestige because he kept saying no every time they offered him a promotion. He kept saying, no, I'm not going to do that. That would suck up too much of my time and I've got Bible study leaders to look after. But will you do it? And this is where I do have to talk about full-time ministry. Because when you guys ask yourself the question, what can I do in fruitful labour? The answer for almost everybody in this room is, pretty much anything you want. You see, in all seriousness, you guys are the gifted ones of your generation. You're clever. You're articulate. You can organise yourself, some of you. (laughs) The reason the uni let you in is because you're the gifted ones. That's what the whole HSC was about, was selecting you out of the rest of the crowd. Because you're the gifted ones. Why not use those gifts for fruitful labour? The labour that will actually last to eternity. You see, the fact is most people don't have this choice. I might offend some of you here. I've kind of grown tired of university students saying, why do we have to make the choice about full-time ministry? Why do we have to be the ones who do? The fact is, you have the privilege. You have the choice that a man like Don didn't. Because for all of his brilliance, he just didn't have the personality that would have lasted in full-time ministry. Most people don't have the choice because they just don't have the gifts. But God has given you the intellect to understand the Bible. You've seen that in Richard's seminars. God's given you the ability to organize your thoughts and to organize your ideas and your words. And God's given you the ability to relate to people. So many people in this room have the gifts to go into full-time ministry. The question is, will you put yourself to fruitful labor? whether it's full-time ministry or not, will you take up your cross? Will you die to sin? Will you die to yourself? And will you live on a cross? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have been united with Christ. We thank you that on that cross, our sin was transferred to him. That he bore it, that he was sin laden. And we thank you that his righteousness was credited to us. We thank you for this wonderful penal substitutionary atonement. That you don't don't give us heaven because we are righteous, but because we wear Jesus' righteousness. And we thank you that in addition to this, you do change our hearts. We thank you that alongside salvation from the penalty of sin, you also do begin to rescue us from its power. We thank you that we are born again. We thank you that we have the Holy Spirit. We thank you 
that the sinful nature in us is dead. And Father, we pray for the time, we long for the time when it will be finally dead when Jesus returns. But please enable us now to fight sin, to put it to death. And whatever that sin is tonight, please, we pray, make us, help us to count ourselves dead. Help us to get the advice we need, the help we need. We pray for lots of prayers and lots of conversations tonight. And Father, we pray that we would take up our cross. For some of us, the thing that's leading us to take up our cross, to not take up our cross, is gaining the whole world. We have big dreams ahead of us. We have dreams of wealth and comfort and prestige and all of those things. But Father, your word tells us that if we pursue those things, we will forfeit our souls. Help us to instead put the kingdom first, Christ first. Help us to take up our cross in relationships. Help us not to put people ahead of you, family ahead of you, romance ahead of you. Instead, we pray that we might trust you, that you are the God who gives good gifts. And Father, for some of us, this is an area of immense pain. We feel frustrated and we feel like we just long to serve you and you haven't answered our prayers yet. Help us to continue to trust you. And Father, we pray that we'll take up our lives in fruitful labor. We thank you that for Paul, to live was Christ. To live meant fruitful labor for other people's progress and joy in the faith. And we pray that we would arrange our whole lives around this. We pray that we would give up money for it, that we'd give up prestige and position and marks that we might have the enormous privilege of being like Don Parker, to pour ourselves out in service of Jesus, the one who poured himself out to save us. Amen.